Welcome to A Pint with Shawnee B, coming to you from a tiny little business centre in the Radisson, somewhere in London. Uh, we've kind of blagged our way in here, myself and my guest, and no better people to blag their way into a business centre than, than my guest. My guest once said of me that I only open my mouth to change feet, which is probably true in hindsight. He is a man who was my boss out in Asia. He is a lifetime member of Sachi and Sachi. I think at one stage you were at Sachi's longest serving employee, employer. I must have been. After. I must have been. He's a legend and his name is Pat Brett. And I'm really glad to be getting to talk to him because he knows where all the bodies are buried. How are you? I'm very well, Shawnee. How are you? You're looking good. Oh, you're looking well too. What's happening in Thailand? Are you still out there? Well, you know, there are, you know, when you look at Brexit and you look at the Irish border, you kind of say to yourself, thank God I'm living under a military government. At least things get done. The king finally died, which is terrible. Uh, He did, he did. And, uh, you know, obviously people knew it was coming, but you can imagine the emotion that was unleashed in Thailand was incredible. But, you know, in that great Thai wave, which you remember, I was in a quiet little pub called uh, Sports Corner. And a buddy of mine got the news on his Google feed at about seven o'clock. But nothing happened. Nothing was announced. Obviously, they, the Thai, the government were trying to work out how to announce this to the people without everyone throwing themselves off the nearest bridge. And at 8 o'clock, the TV screens all go blank. And you get that ominous white out of black typeface. And pictures of the king and the king's own special song. Because remember, they had a yeah. Thai national anthem, but he had, he had his own yeah. song. And they start playing this. And all the waitresses all stop dead. And then they make the big announcement in Thai that he's no longer with us. All the girls burst into tears. Oh. But the great thing about Thailand is they're going, <laughs> we like another beer. <laughs> and you've got to love a country like that. I know. Isn't it, it is the most unique country I've ever lived in. There's something about the... Thailand actually has the highest percentage of female CEOs in the world. Mm. Mm. You know, Our um, CEO there was... was uh, absolutely. And, and a lot of the point of that is that the real pro-female argument from my point of view is I actually think they're better at working than men are. Men tend to be irresponsible. They tend to focus more on them, on themselves than they do on, on the common it good. Yeah. Uh, and I certainly found that in the advertising business. The, the advantage you and I had was advertising as a business where 80, 90% of the messaging is aimed at women. And as a result, we work with a lot of women. And you could rely on them more than you could on the men to get the job done. I'd say 70 to 80% of the people in advertising, certainly in Asia, are female. And what I noticed was they dotted the I's, crossed the T's, they were reliable. They came back from lunch. So I worked with you from 2004 to 2008, I think. So you were in charge of India, Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore, Vietnam, Indonesia, uh, Philippines. Philippines. Yeah. And we had probably at least half of those run by women. Yeah. As CEOs, oh, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Your background, that just... I used to slag you as being a plastic paddy and used to get very cross with me because you are of Irish stock. It's just your accent that sounds wrong. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm one of those unfortunate people who's got a 100% of his DNA from one country that was born in another country and grew up in another country. And it's interesting you touched on that because I think probably the most interesting part of what made me what I am today mm. for the bad or for the good was growing up in the UK with essentially 100% Irish stock. Both of my parents were born in the South. Whereabouts were they from? Yeah, my dad was born on the Sligo-Mayo border in a little town called Charlestown. That was the nearest town. He grew up on the farm. And Charlestown was famous for having the highest proportion of pubs to houses in the whole island. Okay, can't be all That's where he gets it from. Exactly. (laughs) And I've had plenty of practice. Then my mother came from what is now an absolutely stunning place. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
west of Castletown Bear in the oh, deep southwest of yeah, Cork. Yeah, yeah, the Bearer Peninsula, yeah. right out towards Allahees. It wasn't even a village, it was a little area called Urran. And I used to get taken back there for... Did they meet in Ireland? No, they met here. Right. They, they came separately. Well, you remember, my dad was born in 1913 in March, and my right. mum was born in 1915 in January. And they remember the black and tans. I mean, yeah. this came out that towards the end when they were going, you know, yeah. parents protect their children. They, they didn't really talk about the problems with the British during that period of time. But they came over here before the start of the Second World War, and they met over here, I think it was a St. Patrick's Day dance in... Houses Palais or somewhere, you know, and the old man no, no doubt had a few scoops and went and sweat. So what like, did he do when he came over here? He was working as a cost accountant, some kind mm-hmm. of financial back office guy. He'd actually done very well uh, in Ireland. He got two degrees from Corway University. Right. So one was in commerce and one was in English literature. Uh, but of course, there were, no, there were no jobs for people like him in Ireland at that time. Oh. So he jumped on a boat and came over here. But he was never going to get very high because you've got to remember, this is pre-EU, this is... Even in the 1950s in Notting Hill, at the, uh, the bed sits, it said no blacks or Irish. Mm. Right? No, black, no, there's no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. Yeah. That's right, yeah, in that order. The Irish at the bottom of that order yeah. as well. So it was interesting growing up in, in that kind of background because my mother worked over here as a nurse. Mm-hmm. You know, she was nursing British soldiers during the war. But they were never sort of allowed to forget that they were really Irish, okay, mm-hmm. and potentially a danger to... Yeah. The Empire. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you remember from your Irish history, every time Britain was at war, then you know, the Irish question would be stirred up yet again. Mm. So from my point of view and my, and my brother's point of view, we grew up in this kind of little bubble, this mm. little Irish bubble yeah. in South London. All their friends were Irish. All their friends went to the same church. And we grew up in that environment. It wasn't really until I went to university. I actually started meeting English people. Did you, were you brought up to, to you were Irish when you were growing up? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah right. No question about it. I mean, they would sit us down in front of the TV to watch the Queen's speech and all that sort of stuff. Mm. But it was a lot of never forget your Irish kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And both my brother and I were altar boys. The church played a huge role in your life. And I think the circumstances when you're growing up in Ireland is whether you like it or you hate it, you're all in the same boat. Mm. We were in the same boat here. Mm. We were kind of in the boat that everyone else wanted to be in but didn't want us in with them. Do you, okay. have, do you have happy memories of your childhood? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I, well, yeah. I, I, I do. Um, you know, everyone says it was tough or it wasn't tough. But it, I felt it was very ordinary. We had a decent house. The end of the road was turning back common. And like, you know, like every kid, I think if you say to kids, what do you remember about when you were young? You remember the summers. Yeah. You remember the big vacations. The big, whatever, yeah. Yeah. And I'd go down and play football from nine in the morning till nine yeah. at night. You know, There's no threat or fear of anything. Yeah. That's right. Mm. You know, so I'd say overall, yeah, I've got pretty happy memories. Of. Were you bright in school? Or just... Well, he, I mean, how do I answer that question? Well, I mean, yeah, the well one, is, of, one of Pat's other famous quotes is advertising isn't... Uh, advertising isn't rocket science, I should know. I'm a rocket scientist. So we're going to hear about how you became a rocket scientist or whatever the, the, the thing that you did in college. But were you... Were you because you're a bit cheeky? So I would have thought maybe you know you could have been you just do enough to get by. You see, was I was I was always one of those really horrible characters, and I'm quite prepared to confess this now. I was I was a guy who sat at the back of the class with all the troublemakers. Yeah, but I got away with it. And you were smart enough to get through the exams. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's immodest to say so, but I was. I mean, because yeah, yeah, yeah. the results prove themselves. Mm-hmm. But I was by no means the creep who gave the teacher an apple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know. Yeah. For, and of course, heaven forfend. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, looking at me and knowing me, you can't know, believe, I know, you I believe know, that for yeah, a second. Yeah, yeah. And of course, the other thing is that I think the 100% genetic Irishness, you mm. know, I was brought up in a home where laughter was important, you know, yeah. and being funny. 
I think you know better than I do that the test of an Irishman is not how funny are you, not how rich you are. Mm. You know, you can always find a rich guy around the corner. Yeah. What's interesting is you find someone who's amusing. Or a character, yeah. A character, someone who's yeah, who understands you know, yeah. The, the crack, and that's the environment that you're brought up in. And, and you have to be able to do a turn. You know, you have to have a song. Or yeah, you've got to be singing with Danny yeah. Boy and yeah, this, that, yeah, and the yeah. other, and you've got to be able to sort of stand on your feet and, and say a few things. Yeah. But you've also got to remember. Yeah, the English are fucking boring. <laughs> yeah, they are. I mean, I mean you know, despite the fact that I have the passport, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. not saying anything. I don't think that's going to surprise people. Yeah, you know, yeah. they, they they tend to be conservative. You go to a wedding, the paddies will be singing, getting sloshed, and dancing away, yeah. and the English will be standing at the side, going, "Ew, yeah, ew, he's Irish." I used to go back with my mum to Ireland on the boat because we didn't have much money, right? And we take the uh, the train oh, yeah, to yeah. Fishcard or Holyhead, whatever yeah. it was, and we get the overnight boat. And we didn't. We couldn't afford a cabin, yeah. so Mum and I would sleep on the floor in a bar. And of course, once you got outside the three mile limit, the bar was open all night. All night. Yeah. Guess where the paddies were? Yeah, yeah. And of course, when you're eight years old, you can sleep on the floor when you're surrounded by drunken elephants, <laughs> right? And then at the far end, we get in. We get in a, a bus to go to. We ended always ended up in Cork City yeah. when I was going to my mum's. There's place. another three or four hours on top of when you're. Oh yeah, the yeah. But again, you know, when you're a kid, yeah, you yeah, don't yeah. feel it. It's right. And we used to go to the West Cork bar. And Michael Hanley used to drive, uh, drive a Volkswagen Dormobile. He was also a local butcher down where my mum was from, which was like 80 to 100 miles southwest of Cork. I mean, it doesn't yeah. get more remote. The next yeah. piece of land was America, yeah. right? And he'd have about 15 pints again as he can get behind this Dormobile, this Dormobile, you know? <laughs> well, there's politicians in Kerry who are trying to advocate that men who, people who drive taxis and the other people down the country should be allowed to drink and drive. They're bringing that to the parliament and everyone's going, well, okay, that's the Healy Rays if anyone wants to look at it. Well, well, yeah. further, further proof that Ireland's all sensible news. <laughs> so that's kind of how it was growing up. And, you know, I can remember going down to my mum's place and, you know, they, they'd grab a horse from the uh, field and my, my cousin Dorothy would jump on it. Right, 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 you know, right off and well, this is it. I'd say, isn't there supposed to be a saddle trying to sound, you know, the British <laughs> yeah, part, the, yeah. bo- the boring formal British part would come out and I'd sort of say, I've got, I've got to say something here that's not going to make me look like an idiot. <laughs> Aren't we supposed to have a saddle? <laughs> that's a fucking saddle yeah. <laughs> you know and I was thrown on the back of the halls with Dorothy and off we went and it was you know, so you did the whole summer down there I did oh, a yes. few summers yeah yeah Yeah. Well, it was basically every year We yeah. I, I did sort of like three or four weeks down in Ireland and of course coming from a remote place like that you know the, the locals would walk in yeah. And they'd see me and they go, Jesus Christ, now you're Julius son, aren't you? You look just like you're spitting image of your mother. <laughs> right, you know how it is. Yeah. Um, they were from Cornwall, were they? Well, what's the <laughs> my accent? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a Celtic connection. But no, so I mean, overall, my people from Ring here aren't from Ring here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. You ain't from around here, are you? Yeah. You're off my land. But no, overall, my memories are, yeah, are, are happy. And like I say, your parents very strict on you? Yeah, in a. No. They were strict on me religiously, but no other way. Ah. I had to be an altar boy. I had to go to mass. I had to go to confession. I had to do all those things. Did you see any of the stuff that was going on? No. No. I mean, one of my greatest disappointments, or rather kind of one of the things that's affected my confidence greatly, is I was never molested. (laughs) I mean, I don't mind being an ugly ugly adult, but it's a bit (laughs) depressing to think you're an ugly kid as well. Um, So all stuff... But was there any sense of it going on? No. No. Well... Again, you know, well, a lot of people I talk to in, say, Dublin and places, they, they would say, yeah. They, they were I've Christian got to confess group. I never got any of that. But but then I would suggest part of that is because... Of oh, course, you were in England. Yeah, yeah no, but no, but we also went to the same church the whole time. Yeah. So I didn't, I wasn't exposed to the entire Catholic church. I was exposed yeah. to one little church and Canon Gilead was the main priest there for the whole time I was there. 
And there are only three priests there. I mean, you know, in England, in England, you don't need a, a shed load of priests to keep the local Irish, Polish, and Italian community happy, right? So <laughs> it's not like I met everyone who's ever been in the Vatican. Yeah, of course, okay. of course. And did so, you, when did you lose your religion? It started sliding away when I went to university. Well, probably before I went, to be all, to, to be absolutely honest with you. But certainly when I went to university. Uh, I, for, the first, yeah. Well, it's great. The first time I met Protestants on mass, I was going to university, right? Mm. And so there was another Catholic guy there, mm. and we'd say, um, "I go, Terry, uh, you're going to mass on Sunday." And quick as a flash, one of the prods would go, "There are no lectures on Sunday. Mass and mathematics, right?" Right. Okay. So they were all sort of taking the piss, and mm. yeah, they believed in their Protestant God, and we're supposed to believe in our Catholic God. But mm. you can't. You start thinking, "Hmm, something's awry." Yeah, and you then kind of go, hang on a second, we can't all be right. I mean, the Jews have got their view of who God is, and you know, Islam's got their view of who God is, and you've got the whole Buddhist thing, and you've got this, that, and the other, and you've got the, you've got the Christians, and you've got the Vatican, and you've got the yeah. Protestants, and blah, blah, blah. Free blah, Presbyterians, blah. the locked-up Presbyterians. All of this, and, you, and, yeah, and you've got the, uh, what's it, the, the Mormons and everybody yeah. else, and you kind of go, we can't all be right. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Okay, so is there a greater being up and out there? Oh, I've got my doubts, yeah. to be honest with you. Would you like there to be? I think I'd like this. You can imagine what Pat Brett Heaven would look like. It would look fucking. Cool. <laughs> it'll be. It'll be. It'll be. It'll look a bit like. It'll look a bit like Pat Brett Earth. Have to visit. Yeah. It'll look like Pat Brett Earth, wouldn't yeah. it? Really? Well, my other great saying. When, when Satan I, would be jealous, probably. When I die, I want to be reincarnated as me, so I can come back and do it all over again. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, you still believe that? Believe what? That you did. That you know. That if you did die, you'd like to come back and do it all over again, or would you? Do you have regrets, or would you do things differently? I mean, I'm not saying you're oh. old, but you know, you're, you're, you're retired. Yeah, I'm, uh, I guess we all, the, the, probably not, no, to be absolutely honest with you. I mean, I, I made a very clear decision when I was young that I was not going to allow myself to have a boring life. That included the sort of jobs I would take, the sort of people I'd associate with, uh, the sort of places I'd live. It was very important to me to get out of the UK. I'm, I'm trying not to sound unpatriotic, okay? Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, I found the UK a stifling place, and I, I found remember, Ireland a stifling place. Which, yeah, yeah I, I think in some ways there were advantages being Irish in England because you were different, yeah, and you were kind of looked on as different. So you became a bit of an entertainer, whether you wanted to or not, yeah, yeah, because you were kind of forced into it. But I looked at the English lifestyle, mm. and I just thought, I can't see this happening. I can't see. The commute in from Surbiton every day with the mortgage around my neck and the two point two kids and a wife who hates you. Yeah, I just couldn't see that. And when I got the chance to go and work in Rome, I remember thinking to myself, "Look, I'm twenty four, going on twenty five. The worst thing that can happen is I hate it and I get on the plane and come back." Yeah, yeah, I was young enough that I could probably do. I, that. I made a decision because I, I started working at eighteen in an ad agency, and I was like, I was looking around, I could see just all people cheating on their wives. No one seemed to be that happy, and I go, "All right, but like you have to learn." You have to. I said to myself, "You have to learn from what you see." Yeah, sure. And it was like one in two marriages end in separation. There's no divorce in Ireland back then, but you know, I was going, "Well, I'll be the, I'll be the one that ends in separation." That's my personality. Like I kind yeah. of, I'm, I'm like, oh, squirrel, like I'm chasing after shiny objects. And but you know, I made these calls at a very young age, which I go, "That was pretty cool that I did all those things," you know. And I, and I, I, um, I was itching then to go by about twenty. 25 or so to get us to see what the world looked like before we go to your Italy thing what was your what, what was the, the thing about your rocket science what did you actually study oh, so 
One of the great things about the period of time that I grew up in in, in the UK was, and, and this is where the Brits are confusing people, much as they didn't like the Irish, and actually didn't like Catholics, frankly, yeah. you know, because the Queen's the head of the Church of England yeah. and stuff. In fairness to the Brits, because they, you know, they are actually very decent people, they let the Catholic Church run their own schools. And what do you do when you're an immigrant in someone else's society when you've got a strong religion? Is you put a lot of effort behind get inevitably, inevitably, if you come here as an immigrant Catholic, you're going to be poor, right? right. Yeah. So what do the Catholic schools do? They they focus on education because the one way to get out of that poverty trap is to actually be highly educated because then you have something to sell and the school I went to the Cardinal Vaughan uh, Roman Catholic Grammar School for Boys was a fantastic school run by fantastic teachers I actually loved it without, again without wishing to sound like a creep I absolutely loved every day there I really did and there, very few we, kids could say that around that time oh, I've got to tell you this, these, and we were so fortunate to have these teachers they were just every single one of them was just absolutely wow. magnificent I'll never forget also in the uh, I did Maths, advanced maths, physics, and chemistry in my A levels. Mm. And the most impressive teacher I had was a mad Catholic guy from Belfast, Paddy McMahon. And this was his first teaching job. It's a young man. He was, yeah, he would have been 24, 25, mm. or something. And he, he had this great Belfast accent. And I can remember him confronting some sort of six foot two inch fifth former saying, I don't care if you tell the fucking Pope. <laughs> Get back in line, you bastard. <laughs> And at weekends, he played rugby for like the fifth 15 of London Irish. So every yeah. Monday morning, he'd come in and his face would be rearranged, yeah. right? And he was doing a PhD in physics. He was a bit of a Brian May character. He was doing a PhD in, phys in, in physics at Imperial College. And he was one of those, those guys that you meet as a teacher who's massively inspirational yeah, to this day. Captain, my captain. Yeah. 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 And he just inspired me with the way he taught. And he pulled me aside one day and he said, Pat, I think... Also from Cornwall, I see. <laughs> Fuck off. He said, all right, I won't, I won't do the accent. Oh, yeah, go on. He goes, I think you've got a good chance of getting into Cambridge. Now, the school tried to get three or four people in every year. Yeah. So about five of us sat in the entrance papers. The headmaster would not hear anything about Oxford because the headmaster, Father Kennevick, had been at Cambridge. So there was no, if you raised Oxford, you just, that was it. Right? Yeah. Uh, and Cambridge is the science university here, yeah. and I took the entrance papers in fourth term before I did my A-levels, and, and, and I got in. I was accepted at Trinity, at the uh, highest number of Nobel Prize winners in the UK. Just got 33rd or 34th. I did you went to Trinity. I mean, that, but they, did they know what they were doing? <laughs> no. Well, this is it. I, 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 apparently, I did so well in the entrance paper, I didn't even get interviewed. I was right. the only, only guy in my year that was interviewed. Had I been interviewed? I can't for, imagine you enjoying Trinity. I, I can't imagine anyone not enjoying any university, to oh, be honest. Okay, with you. good. Okay, okay. I mean, uh, again, you I know, never went to university. Yeah, yeah, but Cambridge is a beautiful town, number right. one. Number yeah. two, first year and third year, you live in the college. Okay, so second year you're out. But I, I did very well. I was very lucky in the draw for where you stayed in the second year, and I stayed about 50 yards away from the college. So, as you'll know from later in life, Sean, having worked with me, the, the whole concept of doing fuck all from yourself started very young, <laughs> very early in my life. Uh, so like, you were you, like you were interested. You, you were you managed to get into one of the best colleges in the world, doing what you were loving. You know that kind yeah, of yeah. yeah right. No, I didn't actually enjoy the course there. To be absolutely honest, with was you. it difficult? It, it wasn't so much. It was difficult. Is it, it, they made it difficult? For example, I really should have done mathematics rather than doing mm. natural sciences, which is what I did. Because I'm not really a practical person, and you had to complete. You had to do three practical subjects in mathematics in that side. So. And the physics lab was miles outside town, so I never went there. Right. 
I mean, the, the chemistry lab wasn't too bad, so I went there. And, and chemistry is always more fun to do experiments on than physics because you can yeah. blow people up and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Just ask the IRA. And um, so I was okay at the chemistry side, but the yeah. physics side never got done. So I sort of stumbled through the whole process. Yeah. But, you know, rocket science was something I did when I was about 16. I mean, yeah. it's all based on calculus, right? And yeah. calculus was one of my big passions when I was uh, studying under Paddy and the rest of the guys. So it's not a lie when I say I'm a rocket scientist. No, no, but also you're in well, physics and all that kind of stuff. Did you get? You got your degree though? Oh yeah, yeah, I got a I got a Desmond, a tutu. Very good. Two, yeah, very good, very good. You know, so and that was a fairly sort of uh, honourable degree to get. And then you know, all of my buddies from university went off to become accountants and stuff like that. And I'm 21, 22, and I think I'm not going to be an accountant. I just it isn't. It's not me. And I went back to my old. Um, student job all the way through my years at university and even before I started there my summer job was working as a road sweeper so I must have been at one time the most highly qualified road sweeper in the world it's like I go back to Walter's second road sweeper I've had in the world there you go it's a thing about when you've, been a road, crack. When, when you've been a road sweeper, you want to be a success in life, yeah, right? Exactly, yeah. So I go back to Wandsworthtown and all to see the guy who employed a, employed a road sweeper, Freddie Bird, and he goes what are you doing back here? And I go, Freddie I'll like my job back. He goes, how many years you've been at university? I go, well, three. And then I'm going to do a PhD. And he sits down in shock because I wasn't, but that's not the point. He goes, PH fucking D. This country's going down the drain. You should have said in road sweeping, man. I should have said in road sweeping. <laughs> I should have said, Freddie, I'm doing it in road sweeping. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, the di- yeah, the aerodynamics yeah, of road sweeping. Yeah. So I then, I'm sitting at home during my three-hour lunch break, which is another reason I like road sweeping, and yeah. the phone goes, and it's the old headmaster. And they couldn't get maths and physics teachers in those days, so this is, what, 77, 78. And the only way you could teach in a school then without a teacher training qualification was if you were teaching maths, physics, or chemistry. Okay? And they brought me back to the old school to teach maths and physics, and I did fifth form, O-levels, I did sixth form, and I did uh, Cambridge entrance exams again, free year. And I only worked half-time, that's the only way you could do it. So I worked in the mornings there, and I worked in a crammer in the afternoon, so I made decent money. Why do you think you had such a sort of a self-awareness? Because a lot of kids just stumbled on their way into accountancy or whatever, or banking. Did you have a kind of... Do you know what I mean? Like, are their parents say, you're doing this, and they go and do it. And yeah, in fact... 40 like, years later, they go, what in, the in, fuck just happened? You know? Yeah, in fact, in, in fact, my parents, they never said to me, you should do this. These are two paddies out of the bulk field, so yeah. you know, in Ireland. Well, that's, very well, that's my point. I mean, yeah. in fact, I got the Cambridge. If I said I want to go and play for the Harlem Globetrotters, they yeah. said, okay, no problem. <laughs> you know. But yeah, yeah, they were just running up and down the street saying, our son's Was your pay. brother equally academic? Or? Yeah, he was. He went to Imperial. Okay, right. And I think. Being, right, they're going job done. That was pretty good by us, right? Well, absolutely. Your parents, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I think yeah, very much so. And he's done extremely well as well. But it wasn't so much that I was self aware. If you've gone into a place like Cambridge, and you've met all the kids from the private schools, you realise that by default, somehow you're on the same conveyor belt. So all these public school guys were heading straight from Cambridge to the city, on the train, to become accountants, play polo with their mates and everything. Yeah, yeah. And I wasn't against them. Or join JWT. Yeah, or join JWT. <laughs> and I, I just didn't fancy that. And then, so I did my year teaching, and I was thinking about it. Uh, I couldn't have become an accountant, it just wasn't enough. You know, mm. It just wouldn't have worked. Totally agree, yeah. yeah. And then I um, I almost joined IBM, but there were just two American for me. I, they gave me a mathematical test, and the girl who gave, gave it to me, it was like a multiple choice thing, came yeah. back and said, oh, you're the first person I've ever seen who's finished this. So I'm obviously not as thick as yeah, no, no, I see. Yeah. Uh, I, I turned them down, and they went ballistic. Right. The reason I turned them down was very easy. They gave me the, the IBM executive's handbook. 
And it said in there on July the 5th every year, brackets, the day after US Independence Day, you will go to the IBM Sports Ground with your family. It's compulsory. And that is one day in a year you can take your tie off. And you yeah. will compete in the egg and spoon races and the three-legged race. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, that's grounds for... You've picked the wrong yeah, fucking yeah, guy exactly. here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And then my brother said to me, that immortal quote as to how you get into advertising, he said, why don't you apply for advertising? It's loads of fun and you're full of shit. <laughs> and the first interview I went to, the guy threw me out. Brilliant. What, what happened? It was Macy's at the time. Macy's something, 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 something. Yeah. Macy's, yeah. Benton and Bowles. It became Macy's, <clears throat> Benton and Bowles. And it, right. therein lies part of the, the horrible history of Patrick Brett because I actually ended up joining Benton and Bowles. Yeah. So I go and see this guy at Macy's and I've already got the job from IBM and I've got countless jobs from Arthur Anderson and all yeah. these other price waterhouse. I mean, I had jobs hanging out at the zoo, yeah. right? Yeah. Of course, I'm much more modest now but I was a bit of an arrogant shit in those days. <laughs> and I turn up and this guy's got the usual gorgeous secretary. I mean, you know, in, in these days of PC, I shouldn't say that. I'm just sort yeah. of talking about the facts here. This mm. is this, this this was basically... Well, it was mad like, men. It was mad men. It was mad men. Yeah. It was mad men. You know, so I give him the office and the office is full of gorgeous girls wandering around. I'm talking to this guy, his gorgeous secretary. And he did, he did the advertising for Bisto. Remember Bisto yeah. and Gravy? Ah, Bisto. And he did the advertising for Tate and Lyle. Right. And I remember it was a Thursday morning because on the Monday night, Panorama had done a documentary based on how Tate and Lyle tra- treated their black workers in South, uh, South America, I think it was. It could have been South Africa. And the camps that they ran where these guys stepped in dormitories had, as a group of places, the highest murder rate in the world. Jeez. So in I go... You know how it is, Sean. You this lead my, with that. This is good. well. <laughs> this is my first injury in advertising, and I've got something of a small ego at the time. Yeah. I go in, and there is this guy behind the table who doesn't look much older than me, mm. and he's one of the board directors at Macy's. And they've also got the HR guy in there. Anyway, so the interview is going particularly badly, and I, you know, naively I thought interviews were a two-way street. Yeah, of course, these, 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 what, but these guys are sitting there thinking mm. everyone in the world wants to be in advertising. Yeah, yeah. The only person who wanted to be in advertising was my brother. <laughs> I had absolutely zero interest whatsoever until I got in the office and seen all the girls. Yeah. So I, this guy gets onto the subject of cigarette advertising and I can see that he's decided he doesn't want me anyway and I've decided I don't want him. So by now the gloves are off, right? Yeah. And the HR guy is still sitting there smoking a cigar and puffing smoke in my face. And clearly this is to see what the reaction is. Yeah. And of course I should have understood that, but I didn't. And the guy goes, would you advertise cigarettes? And I go, look, I don't smoke myself. Uh, to me, the key question is, does advertising get young people to start smoking? Uh, in the current uh, environment we're in, you know, for the people who can't stop smoking, advertising is trying to switch them down from high tar, high nicotine cigarettes like senior service yeah. and things like that down to number six. So if it was a low tar, low nicotine brand, I would probably uh, advertise it. So this guy obviously was anti-cigarette advertising. And he says something along the lines of, I've never heard such a badly thought out uh, completely absurd answer in my entire life. And I said, yeah. well, look, if we're going to talk about the morality of advertising, I'd like to know what you think about the Tate and Lyle program that yeah. was on a Monday night, about how all the blacks are killing each other in your dormitories on the Tate and Lyle, you know, um, sugar fields, who you advertise, because I've seen the ads outside. Yeah. Get just, out of Basically, yeah. he just goes, I've seen enough. And I said, well, this may surprise you, but guess what? I've seen enough <laughs> as well. And I get up and I go to leave, and by now... The HR guy has a great heart attack, right? Yeah. He follows me down the corridor saying, Mr. Brett, I'm sure we can mm. fix this. And I said, well, there's nothing to discuss, right? Yeah. 
And I never got an answer saying yes or no. I mean, they couldn't even bring themselves to reject me. Um, but then, interesting, about a week later, I was interviewed by a guy in his 50s at Bentner Bowles, coincidentally, because those yeah. two agencies got together later yeah. on. And this guy was exactly what I was hoping I could do with my life. He could speak four languages. He had run Bates in Holland for a number of years. He spoke English, French, Dutch, and German. Self-made guy. I don't think he'd ever been to university. Had been the marketing director of Two Tile Shirts years ago, and mm-hmm. he was now a director of Bentner Bowles. And he was a really sharp guy. And because he was in his 50s rather than his 30s like the other guy, he didn't have all the testosterone to, yeah, to, yeah, to, to spit. Yeah. You know, so I was really impressed with him, and they offered me a job, and I said, if he's going to be the guy I work for, I'll, I'll take the job. And so that was the end of IBM and everything else. Then, of course, I realized very early on, this is going back to 77, 78, that I'd signed on for a job that would keep me in London for the rest of my life, which would be one of the things I didn't want to do. Mm. Because this was pre-people leaving the UK to go to international markets. Uh, and I was offered that job in Rome, and I went to Rome in 1980. Without a word of being Italian, and you Not learned word it over Italian. there, and you met Paolo, who was a... I met Paolo. And you introduced me to him very late on, and he died suddenly. A great, great guy, and he mm. kind of... Uh, I mean, before we go into the Italy bit, because you never went... You, you, you went... That was Sachi and Sachi you joined, you stayed with them for, for the, your entire career. Just go back to the sort of, you touched on, the morality. I mean, I know you joke and all that kind of stuff, and we, we, we have laughs about it, but one of the things, problems I have is the the ethical swamp that is advertising mm. and a great example there where you know one thing's fine but another thing we've got you know as Bill Hicks said what did you do today to your well we realised if you put arsenic in baby food that makes them sleep better at night <laughs> <laughs> you know, apparently it does apparently it does possibly kills them as yeah. well well there you but, go but uh, you know what's your view like now that you're outside looking back on the on the sort of the, the hypocrisy of the business uh, it's clearly there but you know one of the accusations that's always leveled at advertising is it makes people want things they can't afford. Yeah. But in reality, movies and TV are far worse at doing that than yeah, advertising yeah. itself is. I mean, you know, it's a very complex argument because, you know, things like deodorants and stuff like that would never have been invented unless people said, if you smell bad, you're not going to get laid. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And so it's led to technological advances as well. So I don't see advertising as an entire industry, as a bad industry. I just see it as something that drives demand and therefore drives prices down and drives inventiveness because, you know, all this stuff about makes your teeth whiter, makes your breath fresher. Yeah. It's hard to criticise that. And, you know, as I say, the underarm sprays and all this kind of stuff. Right? I had a bit of a problem with the fact that it takes... There's so many people's brains, you know, particularly when I was working on P&G, just spending hours and hours wondering whether the word should be juicy or fruity, as if it... Can matter, yeah, but see, see, that's like trying to cut it down to three people. But surely you can't cure masturbation, and that's what <laughs> it is. You, you've got a whole bunch of guys in the room with their hands on their dicks. Yeah, yeah. That's not advertising, yeah. that's badly run companies. Yeah. Okay, and I would say, in an instance like that, particularly knowing PG, whoever is the client in charge should say, Whoa, we're not going to discuss one word. Let's just make a decision. What do you think in the, in the agency? Let's just get on and do it. Let's have a vote. <laughs> what, what, sorry, like Brexit, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, so much of, yeah. so, so many businesses are incredibly inefficient. But then, you know, you were, you were proper, you, you were, the, the, even the approach, they, the attitude of the big, big, big advertising agencies holding companies had to Asia was appalling because there was, you were yeah. making money for them. Yeah. When I went, because I went, from your planning director over to, in fact, we swapped jobs, if you remember, Jonathan Daly 
got I got his job and he got my job right. a billion to one chance. Yeah. Um, but um, and I two Irishmen, one, one, Irish. one who drank like a fish and yeah, one who didn't, didn't drink at all. Yeah, so he didn't count. Um, but I got to, I got over there and I realized I this this company and B, you know, BBD, all the companies I went, they could work on a quarter the staff. Yes, they could. With, I, I do agree with that. the money. Yes. And better the ads. Yes. Right? But you were always getting phone calls last minute going, oh, can you get us an extra two million from wherever? Yeah, and, you, know, you know, and it was like, we were not running on, we were running on not quite fumes, but like I didn't see huge, I didn't see huge wastage of three people doing one person's job. Well, honestly, or, I mean, the, 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 many years ago, I was asked by some young interviewer for one of the media and marketing magazines or whoever it was. Yeah. And she said to me, so who are your great inspirations in advertising? Who are your sort of the people that either mentored you or you uh, focused on or built your career on? Was it like Sir John Hegarty and blah, 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 blah. And I said, um, no, it was a bloke called Peter Grant. And she said, Peter Grant, who did, who did he work for? Did he work for BBDO? And I said, no, Peter Grant was a manager of Led Zeppelin. And when you're running an advertising agency, you're, you're basically running creative talent doesn't mean you actually actually do the work. Yeah. It means that you hire very good people who can do the work very well. Yeah. And Peter Grant said when he was asked, you know, what qualifies you to be the manager of Led Zeppelin? He used to be an all-in wrestler, by the way. <laughs> and he goes, uh, I can't play the guitar and I can't sing. Well, I know a pair of pricks who can. <laughs> yeah. And that's what it's like if you're running an advertising agency. Yeah. You get really good people and you keep them motivated. And you keep them stretched because the devil does make work for right hands. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I said... I had to answer a thing, what are the three things that you'd never do in advertising yeah. or in your professional career? Uh, and this was with Kevin Roberts, who was a worldwide CEO. Yeah. And I go, I'll never work in the headquarters of any company, mm-hmm. number one. Number two, I'll never leave Southeast Asia. And I'll never work for a company that embraces in any form prejudice as one of its ways in which it runs its company. Yeah. Um, but the first part of that was very important. I wouldn't want to work in headquarters. It's because people don't do any work in headquarters. They yeah, backstab yeah. or frontstab when yeah, things get yeah. really bad. America was atrocious. Yeah, it's just too many people, and they just get in the way. It's like any kind of team, you get a bunch of dedicated people who can work together, yeah. who are stretched every day, and they will enjoy their lives more. They won't be bothered to play politics. And you build them in an environment where they feel that they can do the best work that they can do, and then you make it fun. Nobody mm-hmm. wants to work in a place that's boring, particularly in advertising. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that we went out of our way to do in Southeast Asia was to become a destination group. It would be great to go, great to go and work at Saatchi and Saatchi. When we go to all these award shows, they're always the most drunk. They're always the most happy. Yeah. They win the most awards. Yeah. I don't know if you were there in Pattaya. Andy, yeah, was, yeah. Andy Greenaway phones me up. We're in a happier go-go bar. And we've won Agency of the Year for, yeah. for Asia. <laughs> and there we all are, you know, careering out, out, of, our, out of our minds. Yeah. Now... People would say, oh, that's outrageous, or in these yeah. days they'd say that's inappropriate. No, I mean, it's... No, I, I, I think that was a management tool. And I think I think looking at you as a manager was, was, for me, great in the sense that you got out of people's way. You were there if we needed you. You occasionally had to go, what the fuck have we just done, Shawnee? Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, there was nothing worse. And, and by your own admission, you go, look, you know, if you want my opinion, here's my opinion. But there was nothing worse in, in, in other ages I've been in where the, where the person in your role Oh, yeah. Also, suddenly reckons that they know how to, you know, be like Jose, be like you know some football manager saying, you know, even though I'm fifty, I can still go on and pick myself to play up yeah. front. You know, this is just daft. And, and also the, the the entertainment part, 
it wasn't that out of control. It was yeah. we, we were big drinkers. We were we do it, but like I'm working in a company now. They're really nice. They're really sweet. They're 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 very nice to their people. They're kind. They they, but the the kids today. And sorry, we're two grumpy old men saying kids these days. They don't want to go out drinking, and I hate that. But because I I, I remember like times yeah, with Andy where we would we might work eight or twelve hours a day, and we would go to the low. We just go to one of the bars downstairs at Bokeh and just sit there exhausted, and then something would come, and we we just go. That's tomorrow, and we crack it there. Yeah, sure. We wouldn't. We don't, don't have to be in the office to crack it, but um, and it was, you know, it was great. I mean, it was, it was. Uh, I think also a product of the sorts of people that by sort of semi chance. I know you were the peak characters that you were hiring, but we did have a great crew of people. Oh you yeah, know. yeah. There was a great spread of diverse diversity, as you said earlier. There was, a, there was, there, were, there was no. I, I never felt there was a, a, a gender imbalance that much that I've seen I've, I certainly saw more of it in America and I also saw America as just flabby and, and arrogant oh, and night, yeah. you know you were encouraged well London if anything is even worse you were encouraged in America to kind of not me but like at, at say client service level to sort of stab your colleague behind yeah. the back and yeah. that would mean you would get on that became the job yeah. as opposed to it's actually awful. doing the job awful. and you know I'll give you a great example of what I'm talking about we worked on a cabaret campaign out of Singapore and the reality of life is, a brief went to someone like Bruce and Andy, and it was cracked in a day. And it wasn't cracked just with one idea, it was cracked with five great ideas. Yeah. So what was the point of having all the other people there? Because you get the right, really talented people. This is what they do. This is where their skill set is, yeah. and, they, and they enjoy doing it. And so you get the top guys, you let them get on with it, and you keep them motivated. You make it fun for them. Okay, mm-hmm. you don't become the guy who comes in saying, "Where's the ad? Where's the ad? Where's yeah. the ad?" Yeah. It's the last thing you want to do. Yeah. I mean, you're better off as I used to do in Singapore, sitting down in Hooters waiting for them to come down. I know. Yes, yeah, you, you know. do. And, and, and you, know, you know, you occasionally walk in, you feel like you you were done for your day. You come in, what are you doing? <laughs> and I go, I'm writing a head and shoulders brief. Can I wait till tomorrow? I go, yeah, probably can. Let's <laughs> go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and you know, you got that'll just, never be. I don't think that's ever going to be the case. I, yeah, I agree. I don't um, think it's ever going to come back. But you know, it was a business differentiator for Sarchis as well, mm, making it mm, fun, mm. particularly down where we were. And, and it was very clear to me, you know, again, not working in headquarters, and this, the guys in headquarters never got their head around this. They thought it was about the politics. If you delivered the numbers, they would leave you alone. And you didn't have any of the big international clients complaining about you. You were off the shit list. And the one thing you didn't want to be on was the shit list. Mm-hmm. So my instructions to all my CEOs was, do not get me on the shit list. I don't want to have all the stormtroopers from New York all over me. Because I can tell you this, in New York, they're not making the margins we are. Because they're working there with their mates and taking each other out to lunch every day. Yeah. They will always exploit us. We are the slaves in the sugarcane fields. Don't I you know, get it? I know, yeah. The only way out of this is to make great music like they did. Mm. So let's make great advertising. Let's make the clients dead happy. Let's make our numbers. And in the meantime, let's have a bloody good time doing it. Because what's the point of spending so much time in the office if you hate each other and it's miserable? Yeah. I remember when I, because you moved the headquarters from Singapore up to uh, Bangkok to also save a lot of money. It was cheaper there. But I, mean, I remember when I arrived at Bangkok, Sachi Bangkok, I just realized I have to just stand clear of all of these people, and th- these Thai people running this business because... The Thai advertising we talked about Thailand earlier was just so fucking difficult to deconstruct. It had three jokes in it, it had yep. like fun, it, it had jokes we wouldn't even understand. And as soon as you say you started working with them on say a Western product like a PNG brand, the Thai started writing ads for me or you or you know, yep. like a Westerner trying to emulate the rubbish that we were making. Yep. And I just quickly sort of said, You probably were the one who said it to us. 
just to stand clear and just yeah. let, let the and same to a certain extent in the Philippines not so much in Singapore because that was probably infected you know but um, Singapore's more Western than the West yeah, exactly the exactly. great thing about the Thais is that they are completely different and I mean Thailand and Japan probably have the two most difficult cultures to understand in the whole of Asia Pacific yeah yeah they're like different planets yeah they're not, yeah absolutely they're not the same as each other but they're both completely different to the West yeah. but what's great about the Thais is the Thais have a great sense of humour yeah alright so that they would make stuff that was really, really creatively incisive. Mm. Okay. Now sometimes it would be very, very tight, we wouldn't get it. Yeah. But yeah. a lot of the time it crossed over. Yeah. Where it would, would have been funny to anybody, mm. right? So. Sanuk. Yeah. Sanuk. Exactly. Very important word in Thai. And so it's you kind of yeah you yeah means fun. You kind of had to handle that whole thing really respectfully because it's a very, very strong culture. And if you go wading in there saying that this is all wrong or this is unacceptable or word of so, the moment, this is inappropriate, the Thais will go. I mean, the, so you know, well, we're going to, we, we, we have to include on this recording the story. We were having a management meeting in Bangkok, so all, the, all of our guys from all around the region, the Indians, the Thais, the Malays, were all, were all coming in to meet us. And we, I, I couldn't attend the dinner that night because my girlfriend was sick and you didn't go either. And we arrived at the hotel the next morning and no one had showed up. And our guys had been partying all night, mm. getting drunk in this bar at the very top of the hotel. So they have, a, they have an outdoor restaurant that's 50 stories high. 63. 63 stories high. It's, amazing. it's absolutely beautiful. It's like in a dream, right? Yeah. And they were, I suppose some of our guys were trying to get a drink and a, let's just say without mentioning any names, a phone was drunkenly thrown over a over the sixty third floor and hurtled to the ground. And it was a Friday. We were meeting the next Friday. It was a Thursday night. We our meeting went off okay. There was all this joke about how drunk everyone was, but nobody had mentioned the phone going over. You arrive into work on Monday morning to your desk, which is normally spotless because you don't do any work, covered in posted labels. Call this person. Call that person. Yeah, you can take it from here. The guy was uh, Deepak Okri, and he was the manager of the hotel where the restaurant was. And he was going to take out ads in the Bangkok Post, which is the English language newspaper, saying, no hotel or restaurant should ever accept a booking from Saatchi and Saatchi ever again. And the ad agents were preparing the ad. Yes, that's right. To freak out about the canary. So I immediately got hold of this guy, Deepak, the manager, Indian guy. I said, look, Please don't do this. I mean, at least let's let's sit down together and talk about it. And if at the end you feel you have to go ahead and do that, then then I understand. But yeah, let me at least have a face to face with you. So I did the manly thing. Went over there at three o'clock in the afternoon. Went up to the bar on the top with him. But don't forget where the phone landed. It went through somebody's roof, who claimed to be a relative of the king. Yes, that's and right. Shattered on their bedroom floor. That's right. Yes, oh, that's, that's very right. dangerous. And very. Yeah, yeah, it could have killed someone. Could have killed someone. But. We went out to the very sort of bar at that uh, at the end mm. there of the uh, and we bonded as you do mm. and we had about eight double gin and tonics at the end of it he almost gave me the hotel's business mm. and the ads never rang it was just it oh, came with a job the issue was that you know a lot of people would have gone straight for lawyers or straight for defence it was indefensible what happened oh completely and indefensible and we just wore you know I mean you just wore and said yeah this one you know, yeah. you know the, the guy involved like no one found it funny no one no, no, no it was, no it was, was a very 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 bad thing to do somebody. I mean, 
you shouldn't have a restaurant 63 floors the floors up where you that's can throw true. up folks exactly. out the window that's the island as well what, what would you uh, say to someone who's just starting off in advertising now what, you know, give, give us the wisdom some of the Pat Brett wisdom that you've learned over the years before we wrap it yeah I mean I'm not sure how my experiences really affect the industry as it is today but I think a lot of the experiences I had at a senior management level remain true in most businesses first off I think you've got to you've got to believe in teamwork everyone is stronger working together than working separately mm. you've got to remove the politics from the business politics costs a lot of money and when any business is wasting money on politics everybody has to work harder in an environment that isn't fun because politics doesn't make it fun and I think that's absolutely crucial work well with your people and believe in what you're doing You've got to work hard. You've got to try and do the very best that you can do. Working, you spend so much time working, you can't not put your whole heart into it. So you've got to be, you've got to accept the fact that it's an important part of your life and you have to do it as best as you possibly can. But that doesn't mean stabbing other people. That means doing it as well as you possibly can. Yeah. And the thing with advertising, of course, is everybody's going to see it. So... You don't want stuff going out there that is going to be an embarrassment. You've got to put your heart and soul into it and do the very best that you can. And there'll be guys who are better than you. There'll be guys who are less good than you. There, is, there are some very funny comedians and some less funny comedians. Yeah. That's just how the world is. But hopefully you can learn from those people that, um, that you see doing so well. And, and surround yourself with good people. If I think I did one thing that was good in my position is I was never frightened of hiring good people. Mm. In fact, I realized it made my life easier. Mm. surround yourself with good people no matter what you're doing they don't make you look bad even if they're smarter than you are they yeah, make you yeah. look good because yeah. you've hired them yeah. you know, and you've had the nerve to do so and what about the world away from advertising what about your view of where we're going are we going to hell in a handbasket I think you know I think history will judge western politics of this era very severely you know you, you look at what's going on with Brexit and it's just you know, it's it, to the point whereby I can't be bothered to follow it anymore. But it's just such a complete and utter mess. Yeah. And it's just an embarrassment. Nobody raised the issue of the Irish border during the 2016 election. And it is now the biggest sticking issue. And frankly, I can't see how they're ever going to solve that issue. And this is, this is before I even get into what's going on in America. Climate, you know, climate change, all that stuff. Yeah, what's going on with climate change, all these things. The biggest problem, surely, that we're facing in the West, I think is democracy only works when you have 100% educated people. Doffing my cap to the Australians for probably the first time in my life, I think the idea of making voting compulsory is very, very sensible. Totally agree. We should be finding people here for not voting. And I mean finding, like they find them 500 Aussie dollars, I find them 300, 400 quid here. Yeah, yeah. So that we actually see, you can't turn around and say I wasn't involved. All these things come down to one thing, educating the entire population and making them vote. And I think you'll find historians will judge this period of... The I think they'll judge us badly on how we treated animals. I think they'll judge us yeah. badly that, you know, we didn't, we didn't the work The irresponsibility yeah. of climate change. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, can't, we can't seem to move. It's like, I, I, I remember saying something to a, a, a tourism client saying, we should be planning now for how to get people in this country I was talking to them about to not go on holidays by plane, mm. to stay at home. Well, yeah, that's a great idea, Sean, but they have relationships with the major airlines flying out of the yeah, country. Sure. I know, yeah, they'll have to go away. 
Yeah. They'll have to stop having deals with them because the airlines are we're gonna to have to stop flying as well. Cindy Lopez. We're gonna to have to go up with money, ideas like yeah, money changes everything. We're gonna to have to go up with ideas where maybe restaurants can only re- put red meat on the menu two or three days a week. Mm. Oh, they're never bother. They're gonna to have to. We're gonna to have to yeah. go up with some plan. Yeah. You look after yourself, keep drinking, don't ever stop drinking. Oh, we're gonna go drinking now. We've, we've Thank uh, God. and uh, I'll see you next week. You will indeed. Thank you, Sean. Cheers. Thank you.